Well, good morning. Welcome to Help Community Church. Thank you for joining us this morning. Those of you joining us online, welcome as well. Before we get into our message, uh, let's open up in prayer. Holy Father, we come before you seeking wisdom this morning, seeking instruction from your word. We ask that you forgive us for our sins um, and that we can come to you as those who are forgiven, those who are redeemed by the work of your Son upon the cross. We ask that you would help us to be focused this morning, that we would not be distracted by the worries, anxieties, the cares, the burdens of this life, nor would we be distracted by the pleasures, the comforts, or the delights, but that we would be wholly focused on you, on your teaching, and that your Spirit would guide us this morning, so that we would be edified, equipped, sanctified, in order that we would glorify you in all that we do. We ask these things, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You ever wonder why we gather on Sunday mornings and sing songs? Do we do it for entertainment value? Do we do it to wake people up and to get the blood flowing so that you can pay attention during the sermon? Why do we worship the way that we worship at Hope? Well, this morning as we continue in our series, Tools of the Faith, I aim to answer those questions and more. But before I do, let me give you a definition of worship. The Lexham Theological Word word Book provides a nice short biblical definition. It defines worship as this. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy character of God. But what would be considered a proper odd response? Is it merely restricted to gathering on Sunday morning services? Is it merely restricted to attending church? Of course not. While by definition, worship can be used to describe Sunday morning, it is not purely Sunday morning. A a person does not worship God in part, but in whole. That is, God deserves and he demands the whole person, the whole worship of a person, not parts of a person. Proper and effective worship flows out of the life that is rooted in the principle of Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, where it reads, Hear, O Israel... Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This is the great Shema of the Old Testament. It's referred to the Shema because the first Hebrew word in verse 4 is Shema, which is here. And this verse is what Jesus refers to as the greatest and most important commandments in Matthew 22, 37, 39, Mark 12, 29, 30, and Luke 10, 27. And even today, observant Jews recite this Shema, which includes these two verses and more, on a daily basis, because it is considered the heart of the law. Obedience to this command, living out this command, is how we are able to properly and effectively worship God in all that we do. That is, we worship God by dedicating our entire life, all the details of our lives, to him. In John 4, 24 Jesus makes it clear how worship is to be done. He's speaking to the Samaritan woman. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, spirit here means our inward self. It is referring to our minds, not simply our outward posture, but our inward posture, meaning that just because you raise your hands or just because you bow down or just because you sing does not mean you are necessarily worshiping God. Your spirit, your inward posture must be mimicking that posture as well. And this posture is not 
to be devoid from the truth. It's not spirit or truth, however you feel on that particular morning. It's spirit and truth, not one or the other. So whether it be on a Sunday morning at church or on a Wednesday morning at work or school, we strive to live in a way that worships God in spirit and in truth. And such a life is a life that is full of sacrifice. More specifically, a living sacrifice. We see this with Paul's words in Romans 12, 1, where Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living or walking sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship or which is your reasonable worship. In Mark 8, 34, this is why, which we've already talked about several times already in this series, this is why Jesus says that one must deny themselves for no part of you can remain dedicated to itself if one is to worship God and to him alone. But this isn't easy, is it? It's easy to say. It's harder to actually put into practice. This isn't something that we can achieve merely by acknowledging uh, of, of what's expected. Like, I know what God says, so I, I get it. I understand it. That's not how it works. It would be nice if it was how it works, but it's, it's not. Life is challenging. There are obstacles. There are many hindrances that exist in our lives that keep us from worshiping, worshiping God as we are called to. Think of sin just by itself. Right? Our flesh is weak. Our flesh is corrupted. Our flesh is selfish. Maybe it's not the nature of sin, but the burden of sin that keeps us from this. The guilt of sin that inhibits our ability to live this command out as we feel unworthy to go to God in worship. Because once again, we've committed that sin over and over again. Or we just think, nope, he's not going to forgive me another time. We think we are too dirty to go to God. Or consider the many societal expectations on how we ought to live. When we ascribe to the words of God and when we try to live them out, people think that our beliefs, what we believe and how we practice, it's hateful. To simply imply that there is a truth, an absolute truth, is considered hateful. Some even think it's triggering. How dare you use the word truth? I hate how you're using truth. So we run the risk of losing precious relationships by adhering to what we believe. Others might view us just to be foolish. Maybe not hateful, but foolish. Perhaps it's, perhaps it's family who thinks we're foolish because we're investing financially into a church, into a kingdom that they can't see, that they don't know. And they're wondering, why are you putting money? Why are you putting time, energy, and effort into this? Think of the distractions of life, the busyness that consumes us, the idols that exist, that consume us. Work. We're working for the next promotion. We're staying up late working. We're willing to take on more hours, leaving no time, no energy for God or for church, and in some cases, even our families. You're at school. You're working hard for that 4.0. You're always studying. You want that scholarship. You want that grade. You want to make honor rolls. You make the dean's list, but you never study God himself. You have more concern about what your peers think about you rather than what God thinks about you. Sports and health, you spend all your time practicing or playing sports hoping to be one of the 0.4% of youth who makes it to the big leagues. Maybe it's your health and fit, maybe it's your obsession with being healthy, your obsession with being fit, and so all you do is run, you work out, you read blog upon blogs about health and fitness, but you never crack open the Bible. You spend all your energy on your health and fitness, and you don't have energy left to commit to the church, to your family, maybe, to worship God, to serve others. 
Maybe it's family itself. Every weekend during the summer, you have another family obligation to go to. You never have time to come to church. During the school year, there's always some extracurricular activity that's going on. So you can never be involved. You can never commit to what's going on at church. Now, let me clarify. It's not that church involvement automatically means faithfulness to Deuteronomy 6, 4, or 5. You can be involved with the church and not be faithful to Deuteronomy 6, 4, or 5 at all. But church involvement is crucial in helping you to be faithful in living out Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Consider social media. We scroll on and on looking at cat videos and images and taking those quizzes to find out which Disney princess you are, which dinosaur from Jurassic Park you are, or maybe even which apostle or which lady of the Bible you are. Yet we are unable to find time to pray. We are unable to find time to read his word. And we don't devote ourselves to him as we give ourselves over to slothful sin. Fear. Think of how fear runs rampant both in society and in the church. Fear of wars. Fear of pandemics, fear of economic upheaval, fear of the end, fear of suffering, fear that occupies our thoughts, emotions, our actions as we attempt to avoid or prepare for horrific events. And it's not that we can't prepare for these things. Wisdom would say, you know, hey, you know hardship is coming, prepare for it. You know a famine's coming, prepare, prepare for it. But we're not called to prepare for it at the expense of faithfulness to God's mission. We're not called to prepare for those things or allow those things to distract us from the body of Christ. We're not, we're not called to be distracted um, from, the, from the hope of Christ to the fear of the Antichrist. Right? We must always be grounded in the hope of Christ and not allow the fear of the Antichrist to keep us from being faithful to the body. So of all these things, we must put them down. We must sacrificially give them up, and we must learn to live, as Paul tells us to in Romans 12.1, a living sacrifice. And if we're able to keep these things in the proper place and, and, and minimize them, then we will be able to live out the Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5. But putting them to bed is not easy. If it were, I wouldn't have spent all that time talking about them. Slaying the idols of your life is not easy. Offering up a sacrifice is not an easy thing. It's not an easy thing to take an oxen, grab it by the head, and slit its throat. Slicing the throat open of a living animal is not an easy thing to do. There's tissue, there's tendons, there's ligaments, all kinds of things that you have to take that knife and cut through. So when we talk about slaying an idol, when we talk about making a sacrifice, we need to understand this isn't something that you sleep on, that you do sitting on your couch. It takes physical exertion. It takes much effort. There are four key activities of worship that the faithful believer engages in that helps them to live out the Shema and deal with the many hindrances that exist in life. The first two we have already discussed in detail already the past two weeks. The last one we are going to talk about next week. And the third one is our focus this morning. First, the believer worships by reading, that is by delighting in the Word of God. Second, the faithful believer worships by praying, as we talked about last week. And today, third, we're going to talk about how the believer worships by singing. And next week, we'll talk about how the believer worships by gathering, more specifically by fellowshipping with the body. So our particular focus in regard to worship this morning is that of singing. Essentially, this whole series, The Tools of Faith, is aimed at equipping us to live out lives that wholly honor and worship God in all that we do. All these, the weeks ahead, the weeks past, in fact, every sermon really is essentially um, 
a sermon to equip us to live out the Shema, because that is the life that we are called to do. But those four activities I just listed could be considered the four pillars of our faith that is built upon a faith and foundation, a faith and trust uh, in Jesus Christ. So, how does worship, by singing, aid us in living worshipful lives that honor God? See, the one who knows the word of God, the one who prays constantly, the one who desires to be with God's people and strives during the week to enter through the narrow gate is the one whose lips on Sunday morning willfully gives noise to praise his great name, regardless if he or she can carry a note. For by singing, not only do we commune with the holy God in worship, but we commune with the body of Christ. And in doing so, we are strengthened, we are encouraged, we are refreshed. So how does this happen? What does this look like? Well, first, you must do your part with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your might to engage in worship. You need to remember that you come to church not to be served, not to receive, but to serve and to offer, primarily to God. That's why we gather, is for him. We do so for each other as well, but doing so for each other is out of obedience and out of our response to us first serving God. The faithful believer doesn't seek to exist like a leech, where you can come to church unnoticed and suck whatever you want out of church and leave as if you were never there, hiding in the dark corners, the dark recesses of the sanctuary. That's not the purpose of the church. That's not the purpose of the gathering. Nor is that the desire of the faithful believer. If a person believes that or feels that way, a good, long conversation needs to be had. For one should have no confidence that person is saved. Jesus will not leave the believer in the dark. Jesus will lead the believer out of darkness into light. So when we neglect the body of Christ in such a selfish and shameful manner, that is really the byproduct of a life that is lived for oneself, not for Christ. Because no denying of self is taking place. No cross is being picked up. And most certainly Christ is not being followed. However, it's not all on the individual. The church, we here at Hope, we who lead it, we have our responsibility as well. We are responsible to remove the obstacles, to facilitate the act of worship as much as possible. But the individual who struggles to worship at church and who might have some critiques of how we do it should be slow to criticize. It's not that they can't. But they first must look to themselves and consider, am I denying myself? Have I tried my best to really engage with worship here? And does that remove the obstacle or does the obstacle still remain? Think of like song choice, song style, uh, maybe AV issues, whatever it may be. Maybe it's the chairs, the AC, the heat, something like that. If you've done your part, then yes, by all means, engage with us. We, we have changed things at, here at Hope in light of some of you who have been uh, faithfully critical in how we do worship. We, we are definitely open to that, and we want to encourage that. But again, remember, the church is not here to serve you. You are here to serve God and his church. And one of the ways you do that is by saying, hey, we could do this better. And when you've been faithful to the word, you've been forbearing with us in our lack, so to speak, then by all means, engage with us. 
Singing is one of the ways that God has ordained that we love him and that we love one another at church, specifically on Sunday mornings. Singing is also a natural outpouring of our spirit as new creations. We sing not purely for the ears of God, though. That is one of the reasons we sing, is to praise his name, but we sing for others. We sing for ourselves. For when we praise him, we are changed, we are encouraged, we are built up and refreshed. John Lightfoot remarks on singing as this, As God requires outward and inward worship, so a spiritual frame from inward worship may be forwarded by the outward composure. Gazing, drowsiness hinders the activity of the soul, but the contrary temper furthers and helps it. Singing calls up the soul into such a posture and does, as it were, awaken it. It is a lively rousing up of the heart. So just as we spoke about last week with prayer, your outward posture can form your inward posture. It doesn't always necessitate that. But sometimes we sing because, yes, we need to get the blood flowing. Sometimes we sing because, yes, you are a little tired. And singing can, can, can awaken the heart. And that is a good thing to do. But maybe you say, I can't sing. And that's, that's true for some of you, as I can testify, and just as you can testify about my singing, for those who can hear me sing, which I offer no apologies for. Question, though, would you refuse to sing your alma mater's fight song at a game? Do you refuse to sing the national anthem when you're at a sporting event and everyone's standing and everyone else is singing it? Do you never sing happy birthday to anyone? You never sing ever at all in your life. Maybe you struggle in the desire to sing because you struggle in being obedient. You don't fight during the week. Think of the videos of the people in Ukraine. In the midst of a war, these people, not caring about how they sound, just singing songs about Ukraine, about who they are, without reservation. And why do they do so? Because it encourages, it reminds, it strengthens, it unifies a people. Think of soldiers in our military who sing songs during times of war or even simply training. Do they care how they sound? Absolutely not. Because when you're in the fight of your life, pride takes a seat. Humility reigns when it comes to such a small thing as singing. Especially when you realize how life-giving the gift of singing can be to yourself and to your brothers and sisters. How unifying it can be. It cements the bond that is being formed. However, if you still object to singing, well, let's consider how God answers that objection. We'll look at Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, James 5.13, all of which command us to sing. And of course, I could have gone into Psalms, but to be honest, I was overwhelmed by the numerous commands in Psalms that talk about singing and praise and how it's a natural outpouring of the faithful and the righteous. I didn't know which one to pick, so I'll just say the book of Psalms. Just read, and you will hear and see commands of sing. Let us sing, let us praise, and so forth. But let us look at these New Testament passages. Ephesians 5.19, we'll begin at 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Here, the context of 519, we see that singing is part of how we are filled with the Spirit. When you are filled with the Spirit, singing is a byproduct of that. But we also see how singing is an act of submission to one another. In reverence for Christ, in verse 21. So when we sing, we do so in part because we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Colossians 3.16, Paul writes, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, as well as singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. James 5.13, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Outside of being obedient to the commands of Scripture, singing has its purpose and its benefits. Singing helps us remember the truths, the promises of Scripture. It helps us remember the gospel. As such, singing is an act of blessing, as it encourages us emotionally through truth, not apart, but through it. Singing is an emotional thing. You may start singing not emotional, but if it's rooted in truth and faithfulness, eventually you'll get there. Our emotions can be good. They can be bad, but they were given to us as a gift. And if we use them rightly, they are as a gift. So singing is a blessing in that regard. For as we sing about God, his nature, his characteristics, his glory, we begin to marvel. As we are reminded once again of who he is. Like that song, Behold Our God. I mean, how can you not sing that song and be like, this guy is incredible. I mean, who... Who can behold? Who can hold what he has done? Who can counsel him? I mean, who can give him any word? It calls to mind Job, how God responded to Job. Like, who are you but a mere man? Did you lay down the foundations of the earth? No. Like, it causes you to ponder the vastness of God and reminds you of how small you are. And so when we are reminded of who he is, we are reminded of who we are and who we are not. And yet, despite that truth, we are reminded what he has done for us. That this great God has come down, that he has sent his son to die for our sins. Sunday morning worship, as we sing songs, allows us to reset our eyes from our navels to the heavens. From ourselves to him. So we drink of his grace in song on a daily, excuse me, on a weekly basis. And we do this. After we live a week of obedience, fighting the good fight, after dying to self daily, after picking up our crosses daily, after being hated, scorned, rejected by the world, or maybe even by our own spouse and children, though maybe some weeks it's it's not the world, it's our own sin that beats us down. We have fallen into temptation. We have given in to that sin once again. We have committed that sin that we say that we're repenting of over and over again, and we find ourselves just constantly in that muddy pit. We find ourselves constantly dirty, but yet we still come to church. Maybe we've been beaten down by temptation. Not that we have fallen into it, not that we have succumbed to it, but because we have resisted it, and we are tired. We've been resisting that drug, that hit, that drink, our temper, that lust, Maybe we've been been struggling with laziness, and we've been working hard our week. We've been doing our best not to be lazy. We've been more diligent in our reading. Now we're exhausted. Maybe some weeks, though, it's just because you've been suffering at the hands of a fallen creation that is also groaning in anticipation 
for the return of Christ as we are. And, and as such, you maybe you've received a medical diagnosis or a loved one has, or, or maybe your body is getting older and you're dealing with the existential reality that as you age, your body falls apart, your youth is gone, your glory days are behind you in that regard, and you're struggling with what does that mean? What does my life look like now? What lies ahead? So we come here. We come here groaning. And even when we arrive, we might not feel like worshiping him. We might be so exhausted. Maybe you woke up and you're like, I don't really want to go to church. But you come anyway. But as we go into worship, as we hear the music, as we sing our, 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 the songs that we've picked, as we hear the truth, we are moved. With or without instruments. Because we are moved because of what we sing. We're moved because of the truth. And as such, our spirit is formed by the truth. But beyond the truth, we are formed by one another. As we all, each being their own person, each having their own weekly battles, each with their own background, cultural context, each of us coming together as one body, in one faith, in one baptism, and lifting up our voices together as one voice. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful sound to hear brothers and sisters in Christ who have been striving on a daily basis, who have been dying to self daily, and yet they come together on Sunday morning, regardless of their background, socioeconomic status, regardless of what society thinks of them, coming together and singing the same truths, confessing the same beliefs, remembering we're not alone, and we believe in a God who loves us, we believe in an eternity, we believe that sin has been dealt with, we believe that death has been conquered. That's a glorious thing. It's a moving thing. Why do you think society, I mean, even society understands this? This is why we see videos of people from Ukraine singing, right? People are like, look at this. They're singing in the midst of darkness. Or when you're at a ball, you see videos of ball game. The, they won't play the national anthem. The people stand anyway and sing. People get moved by that. People are moved when others sing. It's especially moving, I think, when people can't carry a tune or keep the key. Because then you know, for the most part, it's real. It's authentic. It's not for show. I can remember when I, one of my deployments to Afghanistan, the chapel there, there'd be about uh, 8 to 12 of us guys there on a weekly basis. There's a compound with only men on it. And we just put in the DVD and whatever song would be on, we would hear, we'd hear the background music, and then the lyrics would be provided. We had to provide the voice. And I think out of all of us, only the chaplain could carry the tune. Everyone else was like a busted drum. Uh, to the ears, the, just the noise alone, it didn't sound good. Maybe sound like a herd of elephants. I don't know. It just didn't sound good. But being in there, it sounded wonderful. Because it was the spirit and the truth that was being conveyed in the act, in the practice of singing. Because we all had a long week. We were all in the midst of darkness. But we were all singing, proclaiming the same light. It's a powerful thing. When a body of believers sings like, like that, it's not only powerful to those who partake of it, but it's powerful to the visitor, to the guest. Right? The, the guest, the visitor who comes, like, boy, this isn't about the show. This isn't about a performance. They're, they're singing about something else. They're singing about something that is deep within their soul. Better yet, when the music fades, and even after the sermon fades, those songs that you sang with your brothers, sisters in Christ, those voices will stick with you. The Spirit has a way of using them for you during the week. You might wake up 
one morning with a song stuck in your head, or maybe you have a song come to your head as you're doing chores or as you're being tempted, and it'll call to mind the truth it speaks of. Just think of some of our well-known hymns, like Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Just imagine that going over and over in your head, or why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but I know this with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Imagine how that would humble you and give you perspective and consider how you ought to live. Or simply, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Truth, such as these words, they form, they shape how we live and how we think. And all music will do that. So that's why we need to be mindful, not just only here on Sundays, but outside of Sundays, what we are listening to. Like Philippians 4a, if anything's excellent, pure, trustworthy, honorable, excellent, perfect, like those things, think of. So be mindful. Music, science backs this up. Music has a way of shaping your brain, whether you're paying attention to it or not. So be mindful. These songs will call to mind also not only the truths that they proclaim, but the call to mind the time you sang it with your brothers and sisters in Christ. When you marvel at that sound you heard, men and women singing together in unison, some off-key, some in-key. The, the, the emotions that were felt in that moment. The, the reasons I love going to the conferences I go to, the teaching is great, the books are fine, but the worship's the best part. Being in a room with hundreds or thousands of other men and women just singing songs of God's truth and just hearing the voices, not the people on the stage, that's beautiful, that's, that's glory, that's Heaven will be like that. When the new earth is on that, that's worship. When all the brothers and sisters, all the people in Christ, we will all lift our voice together. And it's going to be a sound that will shake all of eternity. It's a glorious thing. And if you've never experienced that, you need to. But we try to mimic that here as much as possible. And I would say that we here, I hope we do a great job. And we continue to, I think, I've just been noticing the past few weeks, like the singing, maybe it's just because I've been more particular or try and take note of it lately, but we sing here, and I'm grateful for that. However, music being a powerful instrument, it can be misused and it can be dangerous. Because if we are not careful, music can form our spirit into something that is devoid of the truth. This is why the songs that we select, especially on Sunday mornings, is important. Songs help us by renewing our minds, but if we sing songs that are either full of lies or that seek to give us a self-worth that we don't actually have, we will not be worshiping in spirit and truth. Imagine if we sang about how God's love is reckless. Where in Scripture do we get the idea that God's love is reckless, even poetically? Nowhere. God has loved us perfectly with precision and with measured actions, all to his glory in accordance to his scripture, according to the scriptures. Think about how many times Jesus says this must happen. Why? Because that's what the scriptures say must happen. If we begin believing that God's love is reckless, then where does it stop? Especially if we are disciples of Christ, if we are to imitate him. If God can be reckless in how he saved me, if God can be reckless in the most important venture of all mankind's history, well, then why can't I be reckless to how I witness to others or in how I worship God? 
This reckless love theology, which prioritizes spirit over truth, is a theology that leads people astray, especially young people. It's a little wonder why there's so many youth who are embracing the LGBTQ plus agenda belief system, thinking it's fine with God, because they've been worshiping without truth. So they deny truth. And it's little wonder that they eventually leave the church. If worship prioritizes emotion, energy, and spirit over truth, then the life of that worshiper will reflect that priority as well. See, what you prioritize in worship, you will prioritize in life. What you prioritize to be most important to God, which worship is one of those things, you will prioritize that in life. For that which a person gives priority to, that person gives their heart to. So we must keep it spirit and truth, not just spirit and no truth. Nor do we want to go on the other end and go all truth and no spirit. We must not think that this is a matter of intention or strength or effort. We must not think, well, it's well-intended, it's well-meaning, people like it, it gets people to the churches. It is not enough to be well-intended in our worship. It is not enough to be well-intended in how we live. We are not the authors of holiness and glory. We must not presume we can worship God recklessly or carelessly. I don't think that this is not biblical. We, the Bible is clear on this. I mean, consider the Mosaic law when it came to how the people of God were to worship. This is the law that the Shema is considered the heart of. God over and over again, very precisely, very particularly, described in great detail how sacrifices and offerings and other forms of worship were to be done. And any deviation from that is sin, no matter how well attended. Just think of the high priest's son, Aaron, Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. Right? They deviated from the divine instructions and they offered strange fire. And what did God do to them? Did he just go, ah, oh, shucks. You know, your intentions were well-meaning, but you're just children. It's okay. No, he consumed them with fire. Think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. We're in the midst of the Ark of the Covenant being transported to Jerusalem. The oxen carrying the Ark, they, they stumbled. And Uzzah, being the wonderful, caring person that he was, put his hand out, out of good intentions, because he valued the Ark of the Covenant so much. He cared about God so much. He's like, I don't want the Ark of the Covenant to touch the ground. So in clear violation of God's word, in spirit, but devoid of truth, he reaches out, touches the ark. And how does God respond? Does he say, that's really nice of you, appreciate it, don't need your help though? No, he struck Uzzah down. Because God has a very specific way that we are to worship him. He speaks truth in his word, and any deviation from that is a sin. So we must give our song selection its due attention. We must not be reckless in our worship whether it's how we live or what we sing, or even how we do it. Consider songs that sound like songs from vacation Bible school or some youth conference that has vain repetition over and over and over again, the same line over and over again. Songs that have theology that's shallower than a kiddie pool. Songs that seek to move you through key changes. Right? If we just hit the right key change at the right time, then we'll really pull on those heartstrings. Or simply fatigue as we repeat the same line for the umpteenth time. 
rather than seeking to move you through verse changes as we progress through the song, more specifically as we progress through truth. See, the songs of God, songs of praise should take you on a journey. It should not be a mindless exercise. Just look to the psalms. They take you on a journey. The old children's song, This Little Light of Mine, has more theology and value than most of the popular Christian songs of today. Is there repetition in that song? Yes, but it is a short song, and there's still progression, and it's meant for kids. Repetition in itself is not bad. There is a place for repetition. Repetition is valuable. Repetition can teach. We see repetition in the psalms. But even in the Psalms, the line that is repeated is often connected to a line or a point that is not. There's, re- there's repetition, but there's progress as well. A journey is still taking place. There's still a theological process that is going on. In short, some songs, they're just all noise with no substance. They are pleasing to the ears, but nothing useful can be heard. Some songs are like water. They are refreshing and life-giving initially, right? Some songs, they get the energy going, but water by itself cannot sustain life. We need nutrients. We need calories. We need to actually consume food. There are songs that are fine to listen to outside of Sunday morning that would not be appropriate for Sunday morning, depending on who is listening to the song. But on Sunday mornings, it needs to be considered who is sitting in the congregation, We need to ask questions like, does the song need further explanation to connect it to truth to prevent people from believing a false truth? Does the song proclaim a truth of God that equips or encourages? Is it milk or meat? We don't want a song that might talk about how God is a a way maker, promise keeper, life giver, whatever it may be, but doesn't explain what that looks like. No mention of sin, no mention of, of eternity, no mention of what God has done for us, but makes it sound like it's a prosperity gospel song. We don't want to lead people astray. If a song needs to be explained, it probably isn't a good song for Sunday mornings. Because some of us can come to a song and be like, I know what the song means. I know what they mean by this. But to the new believer or to the skeptic, they don't. And so here I hope we got to be careful that our songs, they teach, they edify, that they're meat and not just milk. And if you wonder why well, it's just words, words matter. Matthew 12, 36, 37. Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And in an age where there is no shortage of options, there is no reason that is godly for churches not to be able to sing songs that are theologically grounded and edifying for the body of Christ. We have a wealth of options. I mean, the Bible alone gives us 150 different psalms that we can choose from. And that's before you write psalms based off of the psalms. So there's no lack of options. There's no reason for us to embrace a song that, even if it's borderline our right, but might be misleading, why take the risk? Why, why take the chance to take that song? Well, it's popular. Okay, but I can lead somebody to hell, but it's popular. So why are we going with it? There's other songs we can choose. We must not give lyrics our whole focus, though. We must not neglect how a song can be sung, the singability of the song. We need to be mindful of key changes in tempos. There are many songs out there that are faithful and edifying, but congregationally speaking, they're just really hard to sing. You just can't sing them. 
And so when we do those songs, it becomes more of a performance rather than the congregation partaking in worship. The purpose of our songs is not to perform or put on a show. Whoever is up here leading us in song and praise, they are up here to lead, not do the worship for us, but to lead the worship. That means getting you involved, getting you to sing. So we need to be mindful of the songs and everything that goes with it. We need to be mindful of the volume and the application of the instruments. All of what we do up here should be aimed towards encouraging you all to respond in voice. This is what makes hymns great options because they're easier to sing than many of the contemporary songs today. And oftentimes, with familiar ones, you don't need any instruments. Maybe a piano or a faint strumming of a guitar, but you can typically sing most hymns without any instruments. A church that cares about the truths of Scripture permeating their people is a church that will take these matters seriously. They will not just shrug them off. They will take these matters seriously and they will put them into practice. A church that focuses everything on the performance, everything on the experience at the expense of truth is a church of man and not a church of God. It's not that we don't strive for excellence, we most certainly do, but it's about our motives. What excellence looks like is determined by God's word, not the latest report in Outreach Magazine on how the latest megachurches are keeping people or increasing their attendance. We determine how we worship by God's word. Here at Hope, we strive to take our time with worship while not being wasteful. We don't want to rush the service, but we want to be respectful and good stewards of the time that God has given us. So we allow prayer to happen unhindered by the noise of the worship team coming up on stage because we don't want, you know, some churches think you do that because you don't want that awkward transition where nothing's going on. We don't rush communion. We take the necessary time for it. We don't rush prayer nor the sermon, though I'm sure people in children's church sometimes wish I would rush the sermon. We keep the lights on because we don't want you to hide. We're not, we don't want to create an environment that's conducive to leeches. We want the light on so the light of the truth can, it's, it's almost symbolic of that, that we want you to be seen. We want to bless you by including you in our services regardless of how uncomfortable it might make you. Now we're not, this, I'm not going to start, don't, don't think I'm trying to introduce a, a way where we're going to have visitors and guests stand up at the start of services. We're not going to do that. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is by you seeing your brothers and sisters in Christ, standing and singing, crying, getting emotional, and praising God along with you, and that they can see you too. That's why we keep the lights on. This is a corporate act, not a place for you to hide. How we do worship at Hope, it may change over time. We're not perfect. We're fallible. Maybe we have a blind spot that we're not aware of right now, and somebody will shoot an email, have a conversation, and it will get us reevaluating what we're doing. Some of the changes that we've made over the past four years since I've been here have been because of emails and conversations and considerations of how do we honor God best with who we are here at Hope. So it may change, and we may continue to implement changes as the Lord continues to bless us with growth. But what we need to keep at the center is how can we best praise God on Sunday mornings in a way that best edifies you at hope. 
so that when you leave here, you're not only leaving here refreshed, but you're leaving here encouraged and strengthened and equipped for the week ahead. So as you seek to worship God in all you do and as, with all, as you love him with all your mind, heart, and strength, you will be ready for that. Sunday morning is not only to get you over the previous week, but it's to prepare you for the week ahead. So if all our songs are all spirit and no truth, come Monday morning, it's going to fall flat. It won't last the night. But if it's spirit and truth, then you, it should give you what you need for the week by God's grace. Now, if it's just truth and no spirit, that will just beat you down. It needs to be both. Let me close with words from Gregory of Nazianzus, the 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople. Uh, these words are about who Christ is, and I want us to end with this because we should remember why we worship, why we sing our songs, why we get together. He writes, he prays, that is Christ, but he hears prayer. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He asks where Lazarus was laid, for he was man, but he raises Lazarus, for he was God. He is sold and very cheaply, for it is only for 30 pieces of silver. But he redeems the world, and that at a great price, for the price is his own blood. As a sheep, he is led to the slaughter, but he is the shepherd of Israel, and now of the whole world also. As a lamb, he is silent, yet he is the word, and is proclaimed by the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He is bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. He is lifted up and nailed to the tree, but by the tree of life he restores us. Indeed, he saves even the robber crucified with him. Indeed, he wrapped the visible world in darkness. He has given vinegar to drink mingled with gall. Who? He who turned the water into wine, who is the destroyer of the bitter taste, who is sweetness and altogether desire. He lays down his life, but he has power to take it again. And the veil is torn, for the mysterious doors of heaven are open. The rocks are split, the dead arise. He dies, but gives life. And by his death, destroys death. He is buried, but he rises again. He goes down into hell, but he brings up the souls. He ascends to heaven and will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the one for whom we sing praise to. He is the reason we gather. Let us pray. Holy Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your mercy and grace. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you're patient with us. Father, I ask that you would convict us as needed by the Spirit in regards to how we respond to worship here on Sunday mornings. I ask that you would cause us to lift our voices to sing praise, that you help us to see the value, the, the joy in doing so, um, the reward in doing so. So motivate us to do so, but help us to do so wisely with discernment. Help us not to be reckless in this. Help us to be mindful of, of the words that we are singing. Help us to ponder and meditate the truths they proclaim. And may our worship, may our praise lead us to a deeper, richer life with you, a deeper, richer walk with you, that it would draw us to your word, that we would uh, seek to gather with one another uh, consistently, uh, that we would desire to... Um, Look forward to Sunday mornings, Father, for the purpose of singing songs to praise your great name. Father, help us to uh, seek forgiveness for our sins when sin has beaten us down and we perhaps think that 
uh, we're not worthy or the blood isn't enough, call us home, call us to your son, help us to trust in your word that we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, and that the work upon the cross, it is finished, it is done, it is complete. So help us to put our trust, our faith in your son, and as we do so, Father, help us to live holy lives. And we ask that you would bless uh, communion this morning, the cup and the bread as we take it, that they would be um, gifts of grace to us as we are reminded of what your son has done for us. Um, and that it would remind us that your son is, is returning to judge uh, the righteous and the unrighteous, and that we would live holy and wise lives as we anticipate that return. And until he does so, Father, hold us fast, continue to work through us so that we can glorify you in all that we do, that we can continue to proclaim your name as you build your kingdom, your church, here in the Cooley region. Father, we ask all these things for your glory by the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So at this time, we'll go into a time of, of communion.